Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I am Colin Davis. I am Brittany Atkinson. On this month's podcast, we are going to discuss permanent disability and what that actually means when it comes to New Jersey workers' compensation. And just a reminder, Chartwell is more than just workers' compensation insurance defense. We have 30 different state admissions in 24 office locations, which you can easily find on our website at chartwelllaw.com. Permanent disability is the third benefit a petitioner is entitled to in the state of New Jersey. We have previously gone into great detail about medical benefits and temporary disability. Unlike those two benefits, a petitioner must file a claim petition in order, in order to be entitled to any permanent disability benefits in New Jersey. So permanent disability is a bit of a misnomer as it does not mean that one is permanently disabled. We're really talking about permanent functional loss um, in a specific body part or even as a result of multiple body parts. Uh, we will talk about different examples throughout today's podcast to help you understand what permanency really means for purposes of workers' compensation. When we reach the point of a claim where a petitioner is done treating or at MMI, we typically refer to this as moving to permanency. At this time, both parties, the respondent and the petitioner, will schedule permanency evaluations. Petitioner will be evaluated by a doctor selected by both sides, and those doctors will issue permanency reports with a rating between 0% and 100%. The respondent's number will be lower, somewhere between 0 and 10%. However, it can be higher for more severe injuries. The petitioner's doctor will find a permanency rating anywhere between 35% and 100%. The percentages of disability relate to the New, York, New Jersey Workers' Compensation Schedule of Disability, or the chart as we'll typically refer to it as. Um, this is the chart um, that will change every year with each per percentage of disability corresponding to a body part, a number of weeks, and a monetary value. There is a percentage of disability for the fingers, hands, arms, toes, feet, and legs. If the body part is not specifically listed, it is considered to be partial total. So these are your bigger body parts, your back, your neck, your shoulder, and your hip. And these tend to be the more expensive body parts. The chart's actually a pretty pretty morbid thing when you think about it because uh, somebody sat down and put a percentage point uh, and first put, took a percentage point and put weeks and a monetary amount. So just as an example, 10% of the arm in 2022 correlates to 33 weeks and a monetary value of nine thousand three hundred seventy-two dollars. It's it's pretty like I said it's pretty morbid in each body part the the bigger the body part the higher the we higher the uh, monetary value so a back is worth more than a finger uh, shoulder is worth more than an arm but the weeks are all the same as the percentages go up the weeks stay the same which is so, really uh, funny because when you think about it Colin you need your hands to work um, especially with you know specific you know certain jobs um, you need your feet and the chart just does not give a lot of value to these body parts. And so when I said that, you know, these bigger body parts, the shoulders, the hips, the um, the back, the neck, they're more expensive because they're they're worth more weeks on the chart. But really you need your hands and your feet um, to work. So it's, it, it is actually uh, funny when you think about it. Well, that's a good point because recently the, the legislature passed a new hand and foot bill, which cre uh, increased the weekly values of hands and the feet before 25 weeks and after 25 weeks. And that hand and foot bill uh, applies to all cases retroactive that did not settle prior to its pa prior, prior to its passage. However, any reopener claim 
does uh, does not get to apply the new hand and foot bill. It only applies to cases that were not that were not closed or currently open at the time of the passage, not including reopeners. You know what I think it's important to touch on too, um, Colin, what actually um, means an arm, a hand, um, a foot and a leg, because I get this question all the time. So the hand is anywhere from the tip of the finger to the bottom of the elbow and then the arm is from the elbow to the shoulder. That is correct. You're, you're right. And so, so let's go over the foot. The foot, then the foot is from the toes to the bottom of the knee. So, uh, so an ACL, an ACL injury will be considered the leg because it is above the knee, whereas a broken fibula down at the ankle is considered the foot. Even if it's in the middle of your fibula, which is the, about the middle of the lower part of your leg, it's still considered the foot. And so I've had cases where um, it's it's sort of, you know, but it's, it's not so black and white and it's, there's a gray area um, in the hip that can be considered part of the leg or the hip. And again, the hip is more expensive. So when we're trying to value these cases, we want to value them more in terms of the leg. Um, and petitioner's counsel is going to try to value that more them more in terms of the hip um, because they're going to get more money out of that. Um, do you ever see that happen, Colin? Yes. The other spot I see that happen is in the hand where if the it's, it's, a, it's a finger injury, almost exclusively petitioner's counsels will make a demand on the hand. Like I have a case currently where it's a amputation of the distal tip of the uh, pinky, which would normally be 50% of the, of the pinky per the statute. However, counsel is trying to argue that it should be settled on the hand when it, it's clearly the pinky. It's as far away from the hand in the, in the scheme of things being the distal tip. Then so we're going to have to conference out with the judge because as of right now, they're not agreeing that it's a finger instead it's a hand. Yeah. And then anytime I have a petitioner say that they're having, you know, trouble making a complete fist or they're having hard, a hard time with their grip or they're dropping things, the judges will typically value um, a finger case in terms of the hand. Do you agree with that? Uh, yes. And if, if there's a scar involved and the scar happens to encroach onto the palm of the hand or the backside of the hand below the knuckle, I see that as well. And it just like I mentioned with the foot, where the foot goes from the tip of the toe to the bottom of the knee, I have seen a break of the top part of your fi your fibula or tibia closer to the knee. The judges say, oh, it should be a leg case, even though it's a part of the foot, because they think they just think it's more of the leg. And and that that's tough. That's that's tough because it this the statute is clearly defines what a foot is, what a what a leg is. But the judges do will at times rule against you. So that said, let's get into um, the importance of permanency exams. So when do we get an exam? And Colin sort of touched on this already. Um, when the petitioner's done treating, so you get your MMI um, opinion from your treating doctor, and then you proceed with um, a permanency exam. Sometimes uh, the petitioner is just voluntarily um, choosing to proceed with permanency. Um, you know, at their own will. There's no MMI note. Um, there's no, you know, discharge note from the treating doctor. They're just, they're done treating. They don't want to treat anymore. Um, and so sometimes upon agreement of the parties, we will actually proceed with permanency exams. There's also a period of time, like uh, another example would be petitioners recommended for a course of physical therapy, kind of falls off the face of the earth, doesn't do the PT. The parties will also agree to move the permanency as well. I see that all the time. However, the one thing I will say is, as because we're going to start talking about getting the exam itself, are there times you see that we can go to permanency in a sense and settle without exams? 
all the time. So if you have a case that you know um, inevitably is going to resolve pursuant to Section 20, and if, if you recall that Section 20 settlement um, is that full and final lump sum settlement. So it's not a settlement pursuant to the chart. It's a settlement that is a monetary value only. Um, then yes, there are situations in which you can proceed without getting an exam. You can save the costs of the exam, um, and you can also save the time to get the exam. Um, some judges will allow this. They will allow you to pursue a Section 20 resolution without getting a permanency exam. Some judges will not. Some judges will require that even though the case screams Section 20 resolution, they will require that both parties get exams. And then there's some judges who will require that just one party get an exam. And typically the one party getting an exam, they usually ask for the respondent carrier to be the one to get that exam because they want to see if it'll be a, uh, we're going to talk the numbers shortly, but a if it's, it's a zero, which would be right for section 20. That's what the judges are usually looking for. But sometimes uh, and, it's risky too, because if you don't actually secure that zero, you might lose the opportunity to resolve pursuant to section 20. Oh, I agree. I, I have had cases where the judge didn't let us section 20 and wanted to get wanted us to get an exam. Petitioner's counsel agreed that we just use respondents and we were all expecting a zero and it came back with a 1% and it, it, it messed it all up and we had to set, settle on an order approving. Yeah, I can see sometimes the permanency evaluators, there will be a little scar and they'll give a very small rating. Um, even our own doctors or respondents doctors will give a small rating on that scar that we weren't expecting. So in those situations, too, I like to, you know, spell out, you know, in our cover letter to the doctors, which is discoverable. So um, we have to be careful everything that's in that letter. But spell out for the doctors. There was very minimal treatment. Um, it was very limited. Um, you know, and sort of flag like this is this case is going to resolve section 20. So I really need to secure that zero. Right. And a lot a lot of the judges there, like you said, there are ones that won't allow you to do it. But the judges that do uh, allow the settlements without exams, they are OK with it because both parties are agreeing. If the respondent is the only one who wants to settle without exams, the judge will not force petitioner to settle without exams. They'll say, no, go get your exam and we'll hash it out later. So I that, think that's, that's really an, a really important point, Colin, because there's times when I get the question, um, you know, we know this is a section 20 um, and basically I'm being asked, you know, to to force petitioners counsel to agree to a section 20 or conference it with the judge so the judge can force petitioner to agree to a section 20. Section 20s, um, you know, more likely than not, only really happen as long as all parties are on board with it, because there's no way to force somebody into a settlement. Right. And on a while, Section 20 settlement. Right. And whereas the, ju whereas the judge will uh, defer to petitioner's decision of wanting an OAS over a Section 20, there are certain cases where a judge will make a recommendation on a Section 20 basis even if petitioner's counsel is arguing for the OAS because the judge looks at all the facts we provide and goes, look, if you take this to trial, I don't think your petitioner's injury is that severe based on the medical records. And I don't know if she's going to be very credible. So the judge may recommend that is uh, strongly recommend a section 20, because if it were to potentially go to trial, the judge could would likely find against petitioner. So while the judge can't force anyone to take a section 20, they will make a strong, at times make a stronger recommendation, say the section 20 is the more appropriate settlement. Do you find that to be the case as well? Oh, absolutely. 
So I think we should get into values and talk about um, how we actually value these cases and, you know, the differences um, in the numbers when you get to certain points on the chart. Um, Something that you're going to hear all the time is the hump. What is the hump? So the hump is a settlement that is over 30%. And we call it the hump because the numbers from 30 even to 31 go up drastically. And I can just, just to give you um, an example, um, 30% at, at 2022 rates is about $62,000. 33.3% at 2022 rates is $99,000. So it goes up drastically. And I can even tell you that um, 31%, so just just going up that 1% is equivalent to $92,000. So it's really that jump from 30 to 31 that, that we refer to as the hump. So we like to, as respondents, stay below that number um, as much as we can because we, you know, that monetary value just jumps up so significantly. And- and the hump to to put that in more uh, to understand how we get to that thirty percent. Usually, that involve we flirt with that number if multiple body parts are involved, if uh, a surgery occurred, um, or if this the injury is really uh, quite se- quite serious that or we're on a possible sec on a reopener and we're asking for an increase of value. But to get to that thirty, you need a pretty serious injury or multiple body parts included. I always like to consider too, Colin, if someone has gone, been discharged back to work full duty, I think that we have a very strong argument to keep cases under the hump. I think that number, that jump is really for the severe cases, the cases where the petitioners are not back to work um, in their full duty capacity. They've been, you know, they have these permanent work restrictions now. Um, I think that it should be reserved for for those those kinds of cases, um, which is not always the situation because, you know, sometimes you do have judges that just value things a bit higher. But um, for the most part, I like to use that as our argument. You're right. And then the, uh, the argument that cuts against that is petitioner was working for a harder job when they were hurt with us. And then after the accident, they left their job because they could no longer do the lifting and went to a much more uh, non, non-lifting job, a sedentary job, a desk job. Then the judge will say, look, he worked at this high heavy lifting job and he's now forced to work at a desk job because he can't do the work anymore. And those are cases where it cuts against us and it is likely to go over the hump. But I agree. Anyone who returns back to full duty to their, especially to their pre-injury job or a, a, a more strenuous post-injury job, it should all, it should always be below the hump. And like I said, the, that's why the multiple body parts is when it to me gets a little more risky because your standard shoulder surgery a lot of the times your judges will fall in around the 27 and a half percent range. I agree with that. that. So when you throw in, even when you just throw in a lumbar spine um, sprain and strain along with that, you're now floating at those numbers when you really have a case that should not go over that, that number. Um, So when we refer to that, um, the the multiple body parts, we're, we're talking about stacking. So even if you have, um, and so let me get back to, to to talking about actually like what is stacking. So stacking is taking one or more body or two or more body parts um, and sort of converting them into um, an overall partial total number. So if you had an injury to the hand and an injury to the foot, you would actually combine those um, in terms of weeks and it would be an award in terms of partial total. Right. And to, to that point, I just opened up Oscar and 
Oscar is a essentially a digital version of the chart, uh, which where you can go. It's a website you can go in and you pick the year of the accident. You put in petitioners' uh, average weekly wage, and then you can put in different percentages, and it will calculate for you. So to that example, I just put in in related to stacking. I put in ten percent of the left hand, ten percent of the left arm, and ten percent of the left leg. So while if you when you, most people think oh that's thirty percent you just add it straight up you do not it 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 does a conversion and it equates to fifteen point zero eight percent of partial total which equates to ninety ninety point five weeks at two ninety eight for a gross total of twenty six thousand nine sixty nine for the year of twenty twenty two so it increases the value of the hand arm and the leg to a partial total number which overall increases the value of the case significantly. Right, so, and as you, meant, as yeah, you mentioned yeah, earlier, partial total is will be significantly more than a just a single body, single hand, arm, foot. Yeah. So when you so even those um, the body parts which are already determined um, in terms of partial total, um, when you have to start stacking them and adding them up, your the value of your case is significantly getting higher and higher. And so we're constantly trying to make the argument that the case needs to be looked at as a whole, as opposed to each individual body part. So if you're taking, you know, a scoped shoulder at, you know, 25, 27 and a half percent of partial total, and perhaps you have a cervical spine, which we see this in combination all the time, cervical spine sprain and strain for maybe seven and a half percent of partial total. Now you're over the hump. And to me, that's not the real value of the case because, um, you know, a petitioner might be back to work full duty. Um, these weren't really these severe, significant injuries that are are keeping him out of work. Right. And I'm, I'm just I'm trying to pull it up right now as we're talking, showing what. So like 22 and a half of the hand, which is typically a surgery number, get get you to uh, a a gross to a monetary number of 58 and a half weeks for 16,614. But if, and that would be a 22 and a half at a hand is, is, is up in the surgery number, but 10% of partial total, which would be a sprain and strain of the neck, a very minor injury ends up being $17,000. So a, a small sprain and strain to the neck is a thousand dollars more than a surgically operated hand. And as we mentioned, it, it is frustrating. Um, for petitioners, because the hand, the hands are far more important to the daily life, but they don't ha necessarily have the value. And sometimes I, I find sometimes the judges will take that into consideration and maybe bump up a, a hand injury a little higher because they know the monetary value is lower with depending on the severity of the injury. Yeah. And you know what? Speaking of that with judges and bumping, bumping things up and being a little bit higher or lower on certain body parts, um, you know, we've said this, you know, so many times, but you have to really know your judge because some judges are very sympathetic to certain body parts, whether, you know, they've, you know, just unknowingly or unintentionally really, um, being higher on certain body parts because, you know, perhaps they have a family member who suffered from a certain injury or themselves suffered from a certain injury. You know, I have a judge who's, you know, a little bit more sympathetic when it comes to um, eyes and hearing loss because of certain family members that, that, you know, they have, you know, witnessed throughout the years suffer from these sort of um, injuries. So know your judge, know what they um, typically value a case at, and um, you can sort of predict, you know, and set reserves that way. 
Right. And the other way to set reserves is we, we mentioned that both sides get an exam. And as I said at the beginning, our respondent exams, um, we always use the same uh, the same doctor for respondent exams, uh, one or two. And so we're, we're very uh, we're very um, knowledgeable at knowing exactly what their reports are going to say, uh, the numbers they give and how that number correlates to the overall settlement. So as I mentioned, our, our permanency doctor, the respondent, will give a permanency rating somewhere between zero and 10%. A lot of the, the ratings will really be zero to 5%. The more severe injury will get you to the seven and a half, 10, maybe even up to 12 and a half and 15. And our, the respondent doctor's number is always low, always lower than petitioner's number. So the, when you see the doc, when our number starts creeping up higher, you know it's going to be a higher overall percentage for the settlement. The lower our number, the better argument we, we tend to have. Yeah, and that sort of brings us to um, a zero rating. So what does a zero rating really mean from a respondent's doctor? You're never going to see counsel's report have a z an actual zero rating. And, and I'll go into you know what's sort of equivalent to their zero. Um, but when you get a zero from a respondent's doctor, um, it doesn't always mean that there's no permanent disability. And what I mean by that is we have to really go back um, and while we use the permanency ratings um, and rely on them in determining an overall settlement award for permanency, we really have to go back and look at the medical treatment. Um, if we have an MRI that showed, you know, one or two disc herniations in the neck, but they otherwise had no real treatment, our doctor might say lumbar or cervical spine sprain and strain, 0% permanency. That does not give us... Um, the, you know, the green light to say, okay, section 20 for $5,000 nuisance value. Um, because now we have these two disc herniations and, and so our doctor's giving us the opportunity to pursue a section 20, but now the value has pretty much gone up. Do you sort of agree with that, Colin? I feel like I have I, a hard time settling those. I can things. completely agree because I just conferenced a case like that yesterday. Uh, the it was it was limited treatment, um, but there was a positive MRI for a one level herniation and two bulges. We we had a zero. They were making a demand at twenty two and a half partial total because it was very limited treatment. But we tried to section twenty it. Um, counsel, counsel felt the value was too low. So we, we went to the judge and the judge says, well, I agree. Uh, it's, you can section it. You're going to have to kick that section 20 number up, but petitioner's counsel went, well, my guy's not going to accept it pretty much unless you pay him outrageous sum. So the judge ended up calling that for 17 and a half, a partial total. So right there, a zero doesn't mean a zero because of that positive MRI. Yeah. So I just had a similar case. So I had, I didn't have any disc herniations, but it was a lumbar spine, um, three disc bulges identified on the MRI, no other real treatment. Um, we got our permanency exams. Um, I have a zero, they have, I think a 45. So the value in my mind under, under, you know, on the chart would be about 12 and a half percent of partial total. Um, we have a zero. So of course, the first question that we get is, well, this is a nuisance value claim. He had no real treatment. Um, here's $5,000 section, you know, section 20, the claim, make an offer. I know, you know, full well that that's not going to be accepted because now counsel is going to take a look at these um, MRI findings. The judge is also going to take a look at them and say, okay, while you do have the basis for a section 20, because you have that zero, 
you are going to have to offer more money because now we're looking at more of a value of 12 and a half percent. And if you don't want to pay for that, then you're going to have to, you know, resolve on an OAS. Right. And the, the argument council will make is look, if, okay, yeah, we have, you, you have a confirmed MRI with bulges and or herniation. If you're going to buy out of this, if, if, if normally it would have been an order approving, you're going to risk up there. There's the potential for a reopener and a possible uh, laminectomy, maybe a fusion down the line. So they make the argument you have to increase the Section 20 value to uh, pay for the future surgeries. Well, we have no clue if there's actually going to be a future surgery because not every herniation results in a surgery. So you're, you're playing a cost-benefit analysis. Do you want to risk the petitioner coming back and getting a surgery in the future so we increase our uh, Section 20 number? Or do we just want to settle for a little bit lower OAS, but it gives him the right to reopen? So that, that's the risk you also play as well with questioning, do you want to increase that Section 20 value? So, Colin, as we talk about herniations and disbulges, um, I think it's important for us to touch on, you know, credits for prior functional loss. And this is where we get into um, our Abdullah credits um, and really reopener credits as well. Um, so a reopener versus Abdullah, a reopener credit you're going to get um, if the petitioner files a reopener um, and you had settled on the previous claim petition, you're, you're statutorily entitled to that credit for the prior award that you paid out. So that's pretty easy to determine, but then you get right, into for the, ex for the exact number it's settled for. For the exact number that it's settled for, correct. Where the, the Abdul credit gets a little crazy because the permanency doctor might say, like we might get a 10% partial total where the doctor says 5% related to our accident and five and a half related to the pre-existing. Do you how how do your judges typically see that five percent uh, so pre-existing? I sometimes get frustrated when our doctors do causally relate some of their conditions to pre-existing um, when we don't have the medical records to support it. I find that I have a really hard time taking that Abdullah credit when I don't have actual records to support it. So even if our doctor says. Uh, 10% partial total, but 5% is, you know, related to his pre-existing degenerative disc disease. Um, if I don't get a nice explanation from our expert as to why he's finding that some of this is, is related to prior, um, then I'm not going to be able to take that credit. And also, um, all counsel is going to argue is, you know, petitioner has been working full duty um, despite this, you know, so-called pre-existing condition going on. Um, and, you know, he has had no, you know, symptomatology. So, there's no basis for an Abdullah credit. So I have a hard time taking it as if I don't have medical records. I, I agree. And it, it has to be a pretty well-documented pre-existing injury, maybe a, a, prior, um, a prior award not related to this accident that petitioner may have um, had a couple years previously or an unrelated motor vehicle accident where they had a shoulder operation for a tear you need that documentation to be able to point and say, see, judge, this is why it's uh, related. But, okay, let's say we have the medical records from a prior motor vehicle and petitioner had just a standard uh, arthroscopic surgery of the shoulder. Normally that would fall anywhere between 25 and 27.5% uh, partial total if it was a work accident. But when it's pre-existing, how much of that actually do you actually get a credit for typically 
It's so it's funny value. that you say that because sometimes um, I find that it's best to forego the credit for prior function, functional loss in a situation like that because what counsel and the judge is going to do is increase the overall award. So now they're going to say, okay, that's fine. So now this is worth 30% and you can take your credit for seven and a half percent, but now you're floating at that 30. So, on, so you don't have much room now. So one reopener, even if it's just a minor increase, if you're now getting into that 30 to 31%, you're not floating right. around the hump. And you, you, you also made my point there too, like that, that prior operated shoulder that's unrelated in a compass area would be much higher. You're only going to get a credit for about seven and a half for it, even though in the comp world, it's significantly higher. But as you mentioned, you're flirting with monetary numbers that you have to massage. And our, our goal is to always keep it under the hump. I mean, I would rather go 27 and a half, no credit than 31 and a, 31 with a five or a seven and a half credit. Oh, I completely agree. I would even make the argument like, hey, I won't take a credit, but I want 22 and a half or 25 and a half. So this way I know that on reopener, I have some room to go. Right. And I'm throwing it in the Oscar right now. So you mentioned, th like we mentioned 31 credit, seven and a half. That would come in at seven, uh, just shy of $80,000. Whereas if we could, forego the credit, 25% uh, of partial total, it comes in at $48,000. So that would be a savings of almost $30,000 just by foregoing the functional loss credit we may be entitled to. Now, we're not going to do that every time uh, because there are certain times you there's it's very severe and we, we can see they may be trying to apply for the, the fund later down the line. And we would want to have as much uh, pre-existing as possible if that were the case. Yeah, I totally agree. And I see a lot of that with back cases. So if I have a prior MRI that shows, um, you know, similar findings um, and, you know, and the, our treating doctor, you know, does agree that there was a material worsening of any prior pre-existing conditions to the back. Um, but we're now we're talking about the same levels that were affected. Um, and, you know, while the parties agree that there was a material worsening, I don't think it's fair for us to build any higher um, on our overall permanency award. And I always make the argument that any pre-existing in that situation should just be um, included. It doesn't, it doesn't make the overall award worse. It should just be included in the overall award. So if I'm already, you know, if I have a laminectomy and I'm already at 27.5% of partial total, um, and it was it involved the same levels that were, you know, identified in this prior MRI, which, you know, pre-existed the work injury, I'm going to take my, you know, 10% or 12.5% and I'm not going up from 27.5% on the overall award. So sometimes it does work, but you really have to have great medical evidence um, from, you know, prior medical records in order to really establish that. Do you agree? Right. And the, the other thing is you'll see a lot when we get an MRI that uh, kind of goes to that same line is we get an MRI. Guy's been working in some labor job for five years, but the MRI comes back uh, degenerative disc disease. Uh, and they, you could try to make the argument, oh, well, it, it, it's degenerative. So it obviously pre, predates us. So we get a credit. But in reality, I don't see a single, I don't think I've had a single judge let me get a pre-existing for just degenerative disc disease unless I had a prior MRI that was a direct compare, that they could compare and say, look, it, it has gotten or it has maintained and stayed the same. 
Yeah. Usually. And then that's when petitioners attorneys start to argue, okay, fine. You want your, you want your credit. Well, then I want to go up to and a half percent. So it doesn't, right. doesn't make sense. And I, I will say very rarely do you get a demand from a petitioner with a credit included, unless there are significant medical records where they're, they know they're not going to, uh, get away with saying no credit, like we're a, a prior shoulder operation for a motor vehicle. They'll, they'll make a demand somewhere in a, a higher range with a lower uh, credit than- Yeah, or even um, a prior award that, you know, it, so you're not on a reopener, but you, you there is a prior award um, for the same body part. Then, right. then typically I'll get a demand with a credit. Right, because you'll get that full credit amount because there was a prior award to that body part because it was a comp award versus a unrelated non-comp motor vehicle accident. It, uh, the other thing that comes into um, permanency is uh, judges, conferences with judges. How, um, wh when do you typically conference a case of permanency with a judge? Because I know a lot of times we can agree with counsel and judge doesn't really even need to call a value on it, but we also have to have the judge call values. Um, how you see that pretty regularly, right? So, I mean, there are some judges who will not even entertain um, a settlement proposal without first conferencing the case. Um, and in that situation, I like to sort of get um, where the judge is going with it, um, where counsel is um, and talk to all parties and sort of see if we can come up with something before I really go back to the client and say, you know, this is where everybody's head's at um, and whether I think it's fair or not. Um, other than that, I typically like to stay away from conferencing um, with the judges unless it's completely necessary. Um, so if I get a ridiculous demand from a petitioner's attorney and they're just not willing to come down, obviously a conference is necessary. Um, if we're very close um, and then we could have the judge call it, um, sometimes again, that's necessary, but for the most part, I like to stay away from it. What do you think? I agree because say the demand is for 25% of partial total and we make an offer of 20%. The judge is automatically going to say, why are we here? Split the difference and knock you up to and a half percent. When it becomes a bigger issue is say the demand's 25%, but we make an offer of 20 or 17 and a half. So the judge could knock it up to 20% or 22 and a half. So the, the wider the range, the higher the judge could potentially knock it up because I, I don't think I've had, I, uh, it's, it's rare, but it, it has happened, but usually the judge will knock us up. They'll make petitioner come down more typically from their number than we go up on average, but the judge is going to make us come up if we have to conference it because they're, they're trying to, they're trying to get it done and, it, it is a risk because sometimes you could come in with a, a, a number that's solid and a judge feels sympathetic because they hear petitioner was uh, avid, whatever, and now they're no longer able to do it. The judge is going to knock that up, even if it's not really medically based. It's more of a, a sympathetic argument. But I also think that um, and again, I say this all the time, uh, know your judge because judges are predictable. And they have values for certain cases, and some judges are higher than other judges um, on certain body parts, and all that. And, you know, and some judges are just higher altogether. But know your judge; um, you can predict them um, and sort of know where they're going to come in around. So, if you are getting this demand from petitioner's attorney, and perhaps they don't know the judge that well, 
um, and you know that the judge is going to come in around your number, I mean, then I will go for just right for the conference and not even oh. waste any more time and settle the case because I know where the judge Ab- is going to come in. Absolutely. A lot, we, 90% of the time we deal with attorneys that exclusively do comp, but occasionally in some of the venues, you'll have people that don't do comp and they make demands that are essentially superior court numbers. And I know like they'll make a demand for their permanency rating and think right. that that's the value of the case. I've got right. that before. And, and I know if I just make this number slightly lower than what the judge is going to recommend, the judge may just take my number because they, they, they see that petitioner's counsel isn't even willing to concede to come down slightly. The other important thing is what you mentioned, knowing your judges. And that's important when we write up cases for authority, because when we make settlement recommendations, well, I, I, I know what judge I'm using. I know they're typically within this range of this percentage range on this type of injury. So that that's usually where my recommendation comes from, because I know if we conference it, the judge is going to hit me probably on the higher end of my range, but still within that range we recommend. Yeah, that's why it's so important, even knowing your opponents, too, because Sometimes you get um, a demand that you know that they know is high. So you know that you're going to ultimately land in a similar area. And they make these demands because, listen, they have a client too. And so they they make the demand that their client wants to make. And um, that's the demand that gets sent to you. And you think it's ridiculous and it's ludicrous. And um, But you ultimately know that attorney and you know that they're going to be willing to sort of work with you. And they know that the, there's values to these to these cases and, and to these that, entities. That example leads us to what uh, you could use the term trial, partial trial, where we don't necessarily need to go through the whole thing and have the judge call it at the end. But counsel will say, hey, I agree with this number, but petitioner's never going to agree to this number unless she gets to talk and testify. So then we agree to petitioner's testimony and petitioner's understanding that the judge is going to possibly call it significantly lower once she testifies. And that can sometimes benefit us because petitioner gets on a roll and starts saying she's doing all this stuff. And like I had a guy recently, he had to bring his newborn baby to court uh, and he was saying how he can't lift anything. And in the middle of the testimony, he picked up the baby, which was heavier than what he said he could couldn't carry and the judge kind of went what do you want me to do here you showed me you can lift it well that just brings up a whole other set of issues <laughs> you're right but that that's that so as we run the risk with the judge the petitioners also do because there might be medical evidence clearly showing they can't lift something but then or they can't walk without a cane and then they come walk into court with no cane and they're perfectly fine and their aunt. Well, since uh, we're, but so because we're coming up on time. But since we're talking about conferences with the judge, um, I think it's important to um, note that when a judge makes a recommendation and neither party, either party decides that they don't want to go with that recommendation and proceed with a trial, whatever party decided that they weren't going to settle for that number I find is going, um, it's not going to work in their favor. So if after a trial, the judge is going to say that person wasn't willing to um, amicably resolve the case. um, So I might find a little bit lower or I might find a little bit higher depending on which party decided um, that that number wasn't going to work for them. So I say that because the importance of the judge's recommendation um, is really beneficial to both parties and it's it's not taken lightly 
Right, because if, if the judge calls it a 25% partial total and we say, a respondent says, nope, we're not paying it, let's go to trial, it's only going to go up from 25% at the end of the trial. And even though it, and the judge will just knock it up, partly because it's like, you you, you rebuff my uh, recommendation. Unless you had some really great evidence why it shouldn't be 25%. I mean, let, I mean we're, I'm talking about just our standard permanency cases, value. And that, so it's obviously, if we have great evidence that, you know, they're, you know, we're, I don't know, I've had this before, a picture of them holding up a fish and they want 40% of partial total. But typically you might show that in the conference to be like, judge, look, I, I'm, I have this and it's going to come out worse in trial for counsel. So yeah, but when the judge makes a recommendation, it, it's pretty much gold because unless you have something substantial, you're you're not you're not swaying you're not swaying the judge unfortunately yeah, and I, and it really goes both ways it goes for both parties and i think for the most part the judges are if one once they put a number on something if you don't take it it's not going going to go right. well right cuz i had a case uh actually right around when i started with chartwell we had agreed to 25% and counsel comes in tells me all that the day before we're signed everybody's signed he brings in the order and hands the judge he goes judge i want to conference this again i think it deserves an extra 27 and a half or an extra 2 and a half counsel walked out of the room judge looked at me and said i don't know what he's thinking about but when you said we were settling it yesterday in the email uh you're going to hold to to what your petitioner agreed to and he he refused to increase the value and said petitioner can take her chances at trial then, but I'm going down from here. So it's, it's a risk on both ends and it's not one that it's, you should take lightly. I think. I agree. And uh, thank you for joining us today on our latest episode of Chartwell. Please continue to subscribe or uh, have your friends subscribe to the Chartwell Chronicles on wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to uh, speaking with you at the next episode. Thank you.